Welcome to episode 458 of the Cyber Law Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views expressed today are not those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, our pets, maybe not even ours, three weeks from today. And we've got a slightly different approach today. We're going to do a news roundup, and then one of our panelists will talk about a book that he has written that is just a great book from my point of view. That's Paul Stefan, who's a professor at the University of Virginia School of Law, formerly counselor to the State Department, special counsel to the Department of Defense. His book is The World Crisis and International Law, which is, I got to say, Paul, I talk about underselling your book. That is a title only a law professor could love for something that is such a wide-ranging and deeply insightful book. So if you want my help retitling it, let me know. Publisher's decision, Stu. Okay. Oh, all right. Well, so it's the publisher's probably, oh, Cambridge University Press. Yes, of course. Okay. We'll be talking about that and other things that Paul is a expert on during the, uh, the rest of the episode. And Chini Sharma, who's been on before, who's a scholar in residence at the Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the University of Texas in Austin. And Sultan Meiji, who's been on many times, who's a scholar at the Cyber Policy Initiative for the Carnegie Endowment and an adjunct associate professor of law at Duke University School of Engineering. And finally, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Okay, AI and companies running AI AI went to the hill. Actually, it was just one company. Sam Altman from OpenAI was up to testify to the Senate. And it was kind of a love fest. I mean, not since Sam Bankman-Fried was up there has have people been so enthusiastic about the pro-regulatory views of a new technology company. What made the difference? Well, the two biggest things for me was the absolute understanding that no matter what was said in those hearings or at the fancy dinners that night or the drinks before and after, knowing that absolutely nothing was going to happen. You know, the, the <laughs> call for a new regulatory body is about as likely to happen as Stuart and I, you know, having a show at a musical in New York, right? That's, you know, hearing the two of us think is, you know, about the worst thing you can imagine. So that's the first one. And the second is, you know, the entire a crowd of, of gray hair sitting across the table from him, not understanding 99% of what he said. You know, one, one member specifically didn't seem to understand the difference between social media and artificial intelligence, regardless of what one would consider the definition of artificial intelligence. So I pulled out the sound and fury quote symbolizing nothing when this was going on. But, you know, a, OpenAI is an unbelievably successful company. It is making billions and billions of dollars. It will displace significant amounts of the existing tech infrastructure that we've all come to know and love over the next over the last few decades. And you have to play nice, but playing nice just means showing up and giving to PACs. It doesn't necessarily mean that anything's going to happen. So, Chini, could we have replaced him with an AI that said in the nicest possible way, yes, Senator, I really think that's something worth seriously considering. I'm very supportive, no matter what the, the senators asked. Based on all of the interviews I've been reading online in terms of how sassy ChatGPT and other bots seem to get when they are prompted with provocative questions, probably not. Uh, which yeah. is maybe my point. I think that Sam Altman learned a lot. Like I think he took his notes from prior hearings and how overcomplicating things 
like oversimplifying them, making members of Congress feel stupid for asking admittedly stupid questions just doesn't play well. Like He came arms open, like, I welcome all of the things that you guys want to do that I know you'll never do. And in that way, just really ingratiated himself with them. And what's funny is I think uh, I cannot remember which reporter, a reporter, maybe Sue Halpern of The New Yorker asked ChatGPT, well, if you were going to regulate yourself, like what are four to five things you would do? And his three pronged list of like new agency, regular audits, et cetera, et cetera, was kind of some of the things that ChatGPT put out itself. Like these aren't novel revelations, but Congress was all over it. So it's generative AI with Sam Altman feedback. Lots of reasons. Yeah. So um, new government agency to license large AI models was his first idea. That's actually a pretty big deal if you think it's going to happen, but it is a pretty unlikely thing for Congress to do. Yeah. And frankly, the way both OpenAI as an organization is structured, as well as so much of the enabling technology and so much of what's being built around this infrastructure is open source, you know, and seeing some of the knee-jerk reaction from the far left in terms of regulating open source is, I think, actually the the more interesting thing that's coming out of so many of these stories. You know, most of the people involved in these discussions don't understand that a lot of the things they're proposing around regulating open source would break the internet or break the cybersecurity we used to keep at least some degree of nominal security around the internet. And in my previous life as a federal regulator, I have to say, you know, beating my head against the wall, trying to get people to understand like why Section 230 won't allow you to deregulate the dark web as the as a certain key agency official still seems to believe. Um, you know, these guys are, sorry, I just, I have to get that elbow in when I can. But the fact is these people don't really understand what they're talking about and, you know, throwing these kind of vaguely worded regulatory suggestions around that have no basis in fact is lovely and wonderful and plays well on certain media but doesn't actually mean anything and so if people are concerned about the medium to long-term economic impacts for example of generative ai you know in, in certain parts of the economy great these hearings had nothing to do with that either good or bad and was simply a way for people to show up early so that later if something goes wrong they can say well we held hearings it's not our fault you know to me i saw it as a a preemptive way of not getting in trouble later on when the New York Times puts a story out. Yeah. And I, I can't help thinking that, in fact, he did learn something from Sam Bankman-Fried, who did very well I, by saying, yeah, regulation, that's a good idea without getting too specific. And he was yeah. like beloved. The, the SBF example is an interesting one. I actually think the Zuckerberg example is probably a slightly better one. Altman did exactly the opposite of almost every single thing that Mark Zuckerberg did, including, you know, wearing makeup. So, you know. So he didn't look like a ghost of a human robot. <laughs> so when he talks about safety standards, he talks about the risks of you know self-replication and uh, yeah. influencing the outside world. Those are the really big, scary risks that some a lot of people think are science fiction. I'm not one of them, but it seems to me at least a plausible thing. But I can't help wondering if the real regulation we would see if we started would be all the stuff where some powerful lobby feels that its interests are threatened by AI, whether it's the copyright lobby or the, the anti-discrimination lobby. Those guys are going to get their boot in on this, and I'm just not sure we're going to see much useful regulation of existential threat. I think that 
If you follow the attempts at regulation, which also called for a new regulatory body after the like slew of data breaches in the cybersecurity world, and then content moderation pre-SESTA-FOSTA when we realized that there were actual physical harms coming out of this, it's like the same trend, but we have even less of a clear image of what we want to be regulating in this case. Like, I don't know that I've heard a very good articulation of what trust and safety looks like with generative AI. I think people point to like one-off anecdotal examples examples, but can't figure out the taxonomy of harms that they're going to even try to regulate. So I just, self-replication is one actual concrete thing that I think that it's good that he brought up. But beyond, that's a very different thing than, you know, the opioid crisis in terms of children using ChatGPT to get access to things that they shouldn't. That's a very different problem. No, that that's a great point. I was going to go down a slightly different path and highlight that so many of the people writing these supposed AI regulatory theses that are bouncing around the hill right now are the same people who tried to do the same thing on crypto a few years ago. And what we saw was zero forward progress from the legislative branch and the executive branch just going, you know, kind of regulating within their existing authority and enforcement structures. And now you see crypto, you know, fundamentally run out of the U.S. financial system. And so I think it is far more likely to see things like the CFPB and the FDIC and the Federal Reserve saying things like, you're not allowed to use AI in the banking system and something kind of grandiose and rather silly like that, not realizing that, you know, the vast majority of BSA and AML platforms out there are fundamentally AI systems that are actually catching the bad behavior. And so we're going to see, I think, an extension, you know, kind of a passive extension from the Biden administration of authorities for the regulation of AI entirely in the shadows. And you'll hear, you know, about this kind of second and third order activity, which is, you know, that's fine. That's what apparently we have voted for. But, you know, when you think about the longer second, third and fourth order impacts, as Jim, I started, you know, highlighted nicely, we're not doing anything about it. And if you're worried about I'm a college professor. I had multiple students last semester basically submit final papers that were written by ChatGPT. And then when I flunked them or threatened to flunk them, it caused an entire drama amongst the administrative staff because we're like, we don't have a mechanism. I'm like, well, it's plagiarism. They didn't write it. Something else wrote it. I don't care what that something else was, right? And it just has now spiraled into this whole thing where now there's a seven-paragraph thing in the curriculum for the fall that says, if you use ChatGPT, I'm allowed to flunk you on site, basically. And that's great. But like now my curriculum is 37 pages long, and it should be three, right? So Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting that so many felt that was a good idea, but it certainly was faster. And if you said to yourself, well, I'll edit it into shape, it's understandable that people would do that. Yeah. What gave it away? Uh, the chat GPT, because like every other engineering professor, especially graduate engineering professor in the U.S., over 90% of my students are non-native English speakers, mostly from China, and they did not understand how to fix the verb tense issue and going from passive to active voice which if you took rhetoric in high school, like most native English speakers did, it stands out like a freaking sore thumb. Wow. Okay. So I thought that maybe the dumbest thing sent, I realize that this is hard to, this is a tough contest to win. But when Senator Blumenthal said, Europe is ahead of us, that might have been the worst line from uh, (laughs) uh, the hearings. Uh, Europe has run itself off a cliff and didn't even see ChatGPT coming and has had to kind of patch its law in bizarre and, you know, kind of dumb ways just to say they're dealing with these new large language models. And the idea that we should rush to regulate because Europe has gotten ahead of us somehow. The only way we could get ahead of Europe is to make more industry killing regulation than they have. And they've really done a great job of killing their industry. 
I think it's even beyond killing the industry to not sound too doomsday, but like threatens to kill the internet as you know it. It's the regulation and the expansive definitions of what AI is. It's the foundation of how the internet works. I I saw this with interoperability in the EU too, like mandating messaging interoperability without any awareness of how like that impacts encryption, how that impacts status flows across, you know, borders. It's really concerning, even just from a very strict regulatory fines for technically infeasible requirements. Yeah. If I could jump in here, I read it as Europe asking the world to do what the Chinese have done for themselves and construct a great firewall. Yeah. Europe is really happy with the idea of a firewall. And the only reason they don't want a firewall is they want to impose their standards on us. And that's a little hard to do with a firewall. But they take the firewall and they'll get the firewall if they're not careful. But as they, you know, we probably won't cover this in any detail, but Ireland has been forced to impose a $1.3 billion fine on Meta for moving data to the United States. And 10% of the uh, revenue that Meta earns globally is from Europe, it would be very tempting, I think, to just change the rules for Europe. They could leave Europe and it would be a 10% hit. So this is a big problem in which the Europeans are at great risk of overplaying their hand. All right. I want to just point out that the Wall Street Journal wrote an article called Help My Political Beliefs Were Altered by a Chatbot, which relies heavily on research that you would know about if you had been listening to the podcast two or three weeks ago and reading CyberTunes, my occasional cartoon commenting on cyber issues, because the Wall Street Journal spends a lot of time on a research project that compared the views of chatbots to the views of Americans and which kinds of Americans the chatbots agreed with. And we will not be surprised, as we've heard before. It tends to agree after it's been trained with wealthy, well-educated people who are Democrats and don't go to church. So it's nice to have the Wall Street Journal come along two or three weeks later and validate our scoops. Okay. The other thing I wanted to talk about, at least briefly, was a Microsoft paper saying that it found sparks of artificial general intelligence in its AGI tools. And it had some interesting stories about, you know, ways in which the AGI came up with clever uses of tools. There are some people who are really skeptical of this. I don't know. Sultan, where do you fall on this paper about how close we're getting to AGI? You know, maybe I'm just the old grumpy guy in the corner since I've been, you know, building AI for over 30 years. But I think they did not, to my mind, demonstrate that they quantifiably can say that there was any AGI in this. I think the unique features of the English language and the unique features of how we have structured data on the internet that go from vague question to some degree of specific action, which is a fundamental structure of a lack of ontology across the internet. Sorry for using way too many technical words here, have left us to a point where I would actually be more surprised if the current iterations of LLMs didn't do this, because then they would not be actually representing both the language models they're working on, as well as the data that is being used to train them. AGI is a fundamentally different construct than what LLMs are able to do right now. And this paper did not do anything to me to demonstrate anything. All it did is say, okay, maybe it's getting halfway decent at understanding English language and halfway decent at understanding how we have structured the data 
that it is using in response to queries. You, you know, don't think it shows really that, that, the, that the AI is capable of imagining the outside world? Not remotely. If you look at the standard knowledge graphs that so much of this data is based on, that that two to three step cycle that the LLMs are going through is exactly what you would expect to see. Um, okay. To me, all it did is demonstrate that the LLMs are reaching a level of maturity that say, okay, we kind of understand the messed up thing that we call the English language. That is really all it does. And I worry that... You know, the hype cycle around so much of this, we need to remember that LLMs are not actually AI. They are not. They are still fundamentally just, you know, advanced machine learning platforms. They are fundamentally just trained on significant amounts of data. They are fundamentally structured to replace search. That is what they are being structured to do. And they are not actually intelligent. They are not remotely close to intelligent. You know, this is like saying, oh, we saw an amoeba eat something. Therefore, it is Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That, that is the breadth of separation I think we're dealing with. Okay. So the Supreme Court made a lot of, well, they, they made law, maybe not a lot of law. They ruled in some cases where people thought Section 230 was going to get a real workout. And in fact, I did too, although I, I predicted that neither Google nor the, the plaintiff in the case was going to end up with what they wanted. And that's sort of true, although I think Google is happier with this outcome than Gonzalez is. Paul, you've got Supreme Court experience, you were at least a law clerk, and you've probably done some amicus briefs. What do you make of the Gonzalez case and, of course, the Tomna case which was an effort to hold Twitter liable for its assistance, such as it was, to ISIS. And Twitter said, no, so Section 230 protects us. Court just did not reach 230. And I think it's kind of hard to get much out of the Tomna decision or the Google decision that might give us some sense of where it's going on 230. Well, you would have to work at it to get something, and you would have to take seriously the reasoning of the opinion, which I think at least some of the courts of appeals, let's say the 4th, 6th, and ninth, wouldn't be inclined to do. I mean, so on the one hand, you have a cause of action, 1990 statute amended in 2016, and on the other hand, you have a defense. And rather than talk about the scope of the defense in Section 230, the court talked about the cause of action. A lot of what Thomas said is obliquely, but not unclearly, an, an essay on what 230 is supposed to do. I mean, 230 has these three words, interactive computer service, that Congress didn't know what it meant when they adopted it and knows even less now that we've got all these great things we can do with computers. And part of Thomas's analysis is a very straightforward why we don't typically impose liability on carriers for failure to screen and censor the information they carry. And that's a pretty important point. On the other hand, the skepticism the opinion shows about civil liability generally by tightening the requirements for aiding and abetting liability is part of a general trend that is friendly to targets that plaintiff's attorneys would like to be able to go after. And so there are some general implications in the opinion that are important for industries like energy, like firearms, you know, human rights cases, extractive industries. The problem is it's a common law opinion, so it doesn't say anything clearly about anything. Yeah. Although I think you're right. One of the things I was struck by looking at the questions that the justices asked during argument was how there was a business right and a 
what you could call a populistish right on the court. And the business right was Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and probably Roberts. And the populistish side of the court certainly was Alito and maybe Thomas, although it's, you can't see it in this opinion and you really couldn't see it in his questions. So it will be a, the 230 fight is going to be an effort to see if the populists can be split into left and right and then persuaded at least half of them not to impose liability. That would be my guess about how 230 goes out. And Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, maybe Roberts, probably lost for people who want 230 to be a tough test that social media sometimes fails to avoid liability. Well, there's another take on this, Stuart, which is that the court may view 230 as not really worthy of its time, given that it's an old statute, there's no real split among the circuits, and they may very well feel, perhaps I feel, that it's really Congress's job to play with this, and they don't have a lot to contribute. So they can hold that view for at least another six months, but they're going to get the cases out of Florida and Texas in which the states have done things that are that are, they are believed to be inconsistent with 230. And I think that's going to force them to say, did Congress intend to allow this kind of liability to be imposed, this kind of regulation to be imposed? So the, the idea of 230 as a defense Maybe there's not much interest in the court, but as a sword used by the the big social media companies to prevent local regulation, I think we're going to have to see that come to the court. If you get a split, circuit split, I would agree. I'd, we do already. Yeah. I think Fifth Circuit, Eleventh Circuit did split yeah. and pretty directly. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna see that. I just don't know how it's gonna come out, given the two and a half way split among the, the justices in their basic approach to two thirty. Okay, I agree that they didn't really much love having this case. It was a disastrous argument. And nobody came out of that argument. Uh, at least nobody on the advocacy side came out of it looking really good. And you can hear the court's relief as they say, ah, we don't really have to try to turn that argument into a Supreme Court opinion. I don't know why. Do you, do you have a view on why Justice Jackson would have written that short little concurrence to say, really, this is just a one-time ticket? It doesn't tell you anything about future cases? I, I didn't quite understand what she was worried about. And she didn't give us a lot of hints. Do you have any idea? Well, I've mused on that. I certainly don't know. But my guess is, although it's written as a common law opinion, there's a lot of general teaching as opposed to for this time only in it. And I would think she would be pushing back against some of the implications in Thomas's opinion, particularly as it affects non-cyber industries. And the opinion was such that she could join it in full and still say, and by the way, it's a ticket for this route only. Yep. Okay. The other big news, or at least I thought it was big news, was a opinion from the FISA court talking about how the FBI and others had lived up to their obligations to follow the procedures that the Justice Department and the DNI had set for use of Section 702 information. And what made a lot of headlines, I thought was the main headline, was that the FBI had gone into the 702 database a lot, not as much as the the last time we heard about this, but still a lot, and uh, had done it in 
both January 6 cases and BLM riot cases, which, you know, on one level it says very even handed, but did not get that play. Jenny? Yeah, it was really interesting because I feel like unless the 702 reauthorization debate had already been teed up by it being potentially renewed this year or up for renewal, we would not see a Fisk decision being made public get this much attention. But yeah, I think that there was a lot of attention given to the overuse. And I thought it was especially interesting that a lot of the January 6th, at least, misuse of the database was credited to a miscommunication between the FBI and DOJ, which does not look like a very good look in terms of compliance and the fact that the AG is directly responsible for ensuring those procedures are complied with. Yeah, I dug into this. It was a miscommunication of sorts, but really at bottom, there's a fundamental divergence in view about how the 702 searches queries should be regulated. And I'm frankly, I'm more persuaded by the FBI's view than justices. What the FBI tends to do is their big advantage over local law enforcement is all the databases that they have access to, and they're really good at searching them. And so when they're in a case, they run right to the databases and start checking names and checking other identifiers to see what leads they can get. And that's very sensible. The problem here is for a while at least, if you checked the 702 database, sometimes you got back the contents of the communication. So you, know, it, you were basically doing a search on somebody that produced the equivalent of a wiretap on them, at least as to some of their stuff. And nobody thought that was a good idea. And what unfortunately justice did when it wrote these guidelines is they said, you can't even check these databases. You can't even go in and check somebody's name to see if there's something in the database unless you already have reason to believe that database has something that is going to be relevant to your case, essentially, which means that I would worry if I was an FBI agent. I, said, I won't know until I check. And at the same time, it makes sense to say, why don't you not look at the communications without more thought? And the problem I see here is the FBI was following its old instincts and justice is fighting those old instincts by trying to retool this one database search to say you can't go in unless you already have a reason to think that your case is going to have and this particular person is going to be in the database. Is and it that particular person is going to be in the database or or that a it, search no. on that person would produce? But I, I can't, I, you know, I'm, I, yes, you're right. The test is slightly and wackily different from, yeah, yeah. It, 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 but it, it, the idea is they're saying you have to have a belief that it will return foreign intelligence in response to that search. Well, you're searching a name. It's got to mean that they were involved in some way in the database. So it's a slightly bizarre formulation that is a trap for the unwary. It's easy to get it wrong. And they would have been much better off if they said, hey, you can check the database to see if you get a hit. Is there something in the database that touches on the person you just searched for? And then give me a reason why you think that hit should allow you to see content. And that would be more consistent with the way the FBI ordinarily does it, would have made a lot more sense. And frankly, I can think of a lot of circumstances where you wouldn't know that somebody who's trying to get into a, a presidential event 
has been talking to a terrorist abroad unless you checked the 702 database to see if he's in there. And then you would definitely not want to let him in to see the president. But you could have people coming in to see the president who are in the database who never get checked because nobody had a reason. All he is is a name on a list. So I think we're going to regret the choice that the Justice Department made. Not only does it kind of create opportunities for people to do this wrong and get the kind of publicity that we saw, but it's not good for national security. I've been carrying on. Uh, No, I unsatisfyingly don't know that I have a clear articulation of where I come out on this. Besides, I can say that I do believe that 702 should be reauthorized with changes. What those changes should be, I really think I'm open to being convinced around different people's, I like Suzanne Spaulding's, just kind of codify what the FBI's put in place in response to being criticized constantly as the least favorite law enforcement arm that has access to FISA. But I think my struggle comes from the fact of the very nature of the 702 database. I don't know what's in it. And I can speculate. I do understand the harms to privacy that people are concerned about. A person might be in the database, even if they have no direct foreign ties to a foreign national, they could just have been incidentally mentioned in a communication that did implicate a foreign national or foreign intelligence. And so even if I'm kind of background vetting people or somebody's background vetting people visiting the president, my name might show up, but it might be because I was born in India and I have a lot of family members still in India and, you know, God forbid, I have a family member that's doing unsavory things or talking to unsavory people, um, perhaps my name or some other identifier tied to me, because it doesn't just have to be a name, just a identifier. They could have they, they could have a router that's been taken over by a ransomware gang and is sending messages to the United States. <laughs> Which we know is happening increasingly, increasingly often. So not my family, to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the short version of the response to this is that all of these mistakes were made before new procedures were put in place that will reduce the number of mistakes like this, and that's fair. I used to think Suzanne was right about just taking the existing procedures and dumping them in, but I now have a problem with the the Justice Department procedures. I think they're wrong. I think they're a, they're bad for national security. And you know, my mantra in talking to people about reforms is: no matter how mad you are at the FBI, please don't work that out by making me less safe. You know, if you're mad at the FBI director, take away his plane for God's sake. Right? That's that would hurt more, and and it, that would target your uh, concerns more uh, appropriately. (laughs) All Um, right. Quick follow-up question. What are your thoughts on the actual national security implications of limiting the number of FBI individuals that would have access to the 702 database? That was an option that the Fisk judge raised. And so I was curious. I know that it's been bandied about, but I don't know, you know, what would that impact have? If you're trying to stop casual errors where people just don't notice or barely notice or aren't thinking, the more of that kind of procedural restriction you impose, the more likely it is to work. This is saying you've got to get a supervisor's permission to file a a subpoena. That will cut down on subpoenas that will later embarrass you. So I actually, you know, as I said, I would say you need to restructure those databases so they tell you have a hit but don't tell you what it is and then let people do those searches more often. Don't call it a misstep. Don't call it a violation. Uh, Say, no, that's what we want you to be doing. I've got other ideas for reform, but my 
basic rule is try to do a reform that will still allow us to catch terrorists. And I'm worried that some of these things, like the idea that you need a, a warrant to search it, don't make sense. And yeah, you would have fewer searches of the database and you might miss a few more things that you shouldn't miss. Not that I think the database is going to be a big deal. It's only a database of cases where the FBI has already opened an investigation, which is like 3% of the total content of 702 wiretaps, which are held someplace else. So you have to already get lucky that the FBI has opened a case on a terrorist for there to be something in the database about them. And now that they're doing it for cyber, you've got this mix of things. Some of them are terrorists and some of them are ransomware gangs. And the likelihood that somebody who's in a ransomware gang is also terrorist strikes me as pretty low. Okay, let's talk about privacy more generally. Chini, there's like three or four stories, and they all read like uh, we're going to talk to Paul later about entrepreneurs in setting policy. These all read like funding PowerPoints from somebody who wants to start a new privacy scandal. So one of them says the UK has a secretive web surveillance program that it's ramping out. Another one says, oh, surveillance cameras are being used in public housing. A third says there's a new company that is making surveillance in the suburbs cheaper. And then there's one that says, oh my God, the post office is spying on the mail. Can you give us kind of a quick overview of what the law is or the quick law behind those things. First, the UK. Sure. I am not an expert in this charter. I didn't read the charter in full, but evidently it is giving the UK government's authority to ask internet service providers and mobile service providers in the UK to hold a user's browsing history for up to 12 months. And this Um, is, to, to my mind, this is basically a pen register. It doesn't get content. It would just know where people had gone at the top level domain. But Um, then we have a couple of those, you know, pesky US decisions where some types of URLs and some amount of metadata might might creep in. That's right. Like your search terms are often in there. Exactly. And so it is unclear. In many ways, this would be like a pen register. The Fourth Amendment obviously does not apply to the UK government. This is not completely you know, out of the same ball field that the U.S. government's intelligence gathering tools. No, you're right. It it is. It's not without privacy consequences. But, you know, let's remember how we got here. The European courts said that if you're an ISP, you're not allowed to keep these records. You've got to get rid of them immediately unless you're mandated to keep them. So the UK has finally said, well, we're going to get mandates for the people that we're investigating, which I have to say makes some sense if you're living in that not very sensible world. Yeah, it's, you know, to a US person, this means absolutely nothing. Your browsing history is already being held and seen by multiple parties. Like, this impacts you not at all. In the UK, you're right. I think it, it is a response to the government realizing that Privacy protections that have their own justifications are making it harder for them to access information retrospectively when they realize that there's an issue that they want to investigate further. Okay, surveillance cameras in the suburbs, in public housing. It was really interesting. It was, those are two. So, to summarize kind of the two things that are going on, and there's a 
an explosion of the use of surveillance cameras everywhere. Every other door has a ring on it if you are in a relatively affluent neighborhood. Many, many districts, including D.C. where I lived and Austin, have programs where you will have your camera subsidized if you allow the city to have access to footage on different terms. Different cities have different terms. So one story is about there is a company that is making it incredibly affordable for smaller police departments to have the sort of aggregating technology that can pull in input from the public cameras that are posted everywhere, but also from private cameras that consent to have their data be pulled into the center as well. So this means two things. One, the infrastructure that needs to be built out has become significantly less expensive. And now I can't speak to how valuable it is or how high quality the product is, I'm not sure. But what this also means is there is an incentive for police officers to be cooperating or incentivizing the average citizen in those areas to install compatible hardware and allow the feeds coming from those cameras to be streamed live to this central point where private and public feeds will be kind of displayed. And I think what the goal is They want to create, I mean, I'm not sure if anyone here or listening has watched Batman, but the sort of heat map where you can look into one specific area in the city and identify kind of what, have an actual visual of the movement of individuals there. Now, the company says that they do not store any facial recognition information or other kinds of biometrics information. Right. And as you would expect, right? They'll they'll do that later. (laughs) And that's exactly it. Have we not learned that when something is free or extremely, like, you know, not expensive, there is a reason why they want to expand their market share to the point where all of a sudden they are indispensable. And then when they change their terms and decide to engage in new ventures like facial recognition, they're better able to do that with the foothold in the market? Actually, I'm guessing they will have a plug-in. They'll just have an API for Clearview AI, because Clearview AI has already suffered the pain of collecting an enormous number of images in a fashion that is at least legally dubious in some cases. And they've got it. And you'd be running big risks if you went out to try to duplicate that capability. How about the the public housing residents? Yeah, I think that's why the lack of facial recognition is especially interesting in the police department situation. In the public housing situation, we're talking about civil housing tenant disputes and cameras placed in public housing are equipped at times with facial recognition and other kinds of AI kind of trend detecting technology that is now being used as evidence to evict individuals from public housing. And it's a really unsatisfying kind of, not because the investigative piece wasn't really well-written and well-researched, but because it's kind of like a dumb moment of, well, if you are using public housing, we all know that a lot of these contracts can be very pernicious and you sign away a lot of rights to have access to affordable living. And so, of course, you are saying you can come into my home and put a camera wherever you want. You're consenting to it via the contract. They didn't put a, they didn't put cameras in people's homes, did they? they I thought- there's actually an instance of an officer tried to come into the room or I think maybe someone from the management company tried to come in to put a camera in the woman's bedroom <laughs> and she resisted and that became kind of like a landlord-tenant dispute. And so it's really kind of questionable. I mean, some of these are in laundry rooms or in hallways, places where we consider public, but they do have still some privacy protection because they're you know, ancillary to the home. But in those cases, the question is, well, why can we use 
I think the examples were a man spit in a hallway and then a woman took a laundry cart from the laundry room. And those were used, among other things, as bases to evict those individuals from public housing. And HUD came out and said, well, we didn't intend it to be used for that, but that's not prevented. Like we didn't prohibit the use of these cameras for that either. And so, I mean, the question becomes like, we all know that technology is neutral in as much as you can use it for all sorts of reasons. And if you are unhappy with the uses of it, that should have been something that was contracted in early on. You can't prevent a camera from being used for evicting someone who probably shouldn't be evicted from their home so easily. You know, I can't be evicted from my home for spitting because I am luckily to be privileged and not signing off that right. But I think I may be the only person on this uh, panel who has lived in public housing. And when you do, privacy is important, but security is so much more important that being able to figure out who stole your stuff or broke your window or assaulted somebody in your neighborhood is so much higher in your mind than making sure that when you spit, you're not penalized for it, that I'm willing to bet that if you let most of the people who lived in these public housing projects vote, they'd say they wanted more, not less, and that we're bringing first world views to a community that is not benefited and may be harmed by telling them how much we're going to do for their privacy. I think it's a really good point. And I, of course, am not the person that can represent any party on this. But I also do think that there have been studies that show that certain populations of color in certain areas are very resistant to the increase in number of cameras in and out of their homes because they've seen it used for kind of targeted policing. And so there's, I don't know that there's a clear answer on this. And I think it differs jurisdiction to jurisdiction, community to community. And also your views on it are going to be, I think, informed by your lived experiences. So yes, I agree. Like there was a great anecdote of a gas station owner who says, I was more than happy to install this camera because I've been robbed three times in the past month. And that's not what you want for your small businesses either. Yep. Well, I just want, I want it remarked upon that this is the first time in the 458 episodes of the Cyber Law Podcast that I've been able to play the check your privilege card. <laughs> so, all right, Sultan, Chini, thank you so much for doing this. We're now going to turn to Paul Stephen has written a book. It's pronounced Stephen, but spelled Stephan, S-T-E-P-H-A-N. And his book is The World Crisis in International Law. The Knowledge Economy and the Battle for the Future, which to my mind undersells the significance of the book. But I'm not going to tell you what's in it. Paul, can you give me a two-minute version of what this book does and, and maybe a little why you wrote it? Sure, Stuart. And first, thanks for having me on. It's a great privilege. The idea behind the book is that there is a concatenation of crises, of problems, of challenges, and that they have some connections with each other, that we don't just have a a set of random events, but it's possible to make sense of what I think genuinely can be called a crisis. One of the problems with the title, of course, is that the world crisis has already been used. Winston Churchill's book of the same title, but I think it's fair to say that the world is in a dark place, that it's not something that a change of personalities in the political ruling class will solve, that there's a deep structure, and I think the deep structure is economic. The story historically is about the enthusiasms that existed at the end of the Cold War 
and how that led to institution building on many levels, from the conversion of the European communities into the European Union, the creation of any number of or expansion of international organizations. Of course, on the, our continent, it's NAFTA, it's a similar effect, but it's more than trade and investment. It's uh, synergistic with changes in cyber technology, the rise of the internet and all that. And then in the 21st century, pushback, first episodic, things that aren't supposed to go the way they went, followed by, you know, 2016 is for many people the year when everything changes, when the Brits vote for Brexit and America votes for Donald Trump. And suddenly it's no longer just bad luck, but something more seems to be going on. And I document how in the last seven years is just one damn thing after another. The second part of the book is to try and come up with a coherent economic explanation for both why we made these choices back in the 90s and what we did not anticipate in terms of, on the one hand, going long on the knowledge economy, going long on human capital, and underappreciating the social capital effect, use a term that both economists and sociologists use, resulting in significant political polarization. I use international law as the canary in the coal mine, partly because international law is kind of what I do, at least it's the thing I do. But I think it's a good indicator of these broader social and economic and political trends. It is an effect, not a cause, I think. But, but by looking at the problems we're having in international law. I think we're learning something about these tendencies, these incentives. And then at the very end of the book, I try to make sense of the future going forward. And I have one chapter that says we're all doomed. And then another chapter that says, well, maybe not. And maybe there are ways we can climb out of this. But it involves a very different approach to the world from the one we committed to so resoundedly in the 1990s. Yeah, that is great. I really love this book because it's very gracefully written with, you know, what I love is an ability to informally convey fairly complicated and nuanced thoughts. And it does that really well. I may be prejudiced because my life and yours are, and my career and yours are surprisingly parallel. And this may be, this may account for what the book really is. It's a kind of musing the illusions of our youth and the disillusion of our late middle age and later and what the themes are to that. I mean, when I went to law school, when you went to law school, we all went to law school, right? That was what we, what you did. Since then, people instead go, go to Stanford and study uh, computer engineering, or maybe they go to business school. Those are more likely to attract the very best. But in, in our days, the best people tended to go to law school with a variety of reasons for doing that. And so we all ended up thinking the law was a very big deal and bringing that view to our sense of how the world should be ordered when we got into a position to make decisions. And you and I both I think spent a lot of time doing international legal stuff and probably with the fair wind that came from having been on the winning side of the Cold War so that people thought maybe we knew more than we did. I don't know about you. I was certainly the case in my case. And so this is not just a 
story of 40 years of social change, but it's the story of your particular participation in it and really a generation's participation in it. Yeah, the only thing I would like, I agree completely. I think you and I are almost exactly the same age. I might be a little bit older than you. No, I screwed around before I went to As did I. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I happened to screw around in the CIA, so that's a little bit different. But the, I was I was living in public housing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the only thing I would add is I don't have a grievance against time. You know, I'm actually certainly very happy with my own life, and I have no despair and expect things to change. It'd be very boring if they didn't. So I would hope that my book doesn't come across as an old man's lament for a lost past. No, it is. It is not that. It is a what the other thing I like about it is you are really surprisingly arm's length about things that I know you probably feel strongly about, but you have looked pretty hard at the motivations of both sides of some of these debates and been pretty fair to them, at least in my view. And since I'm in some cases on the other side, I think that counts for something. But let me, let's jump in. The arc of history, you've kind of laid it out, but to my mind, it really begins in the 80s. You don't spend so much time in the 80s, but I think that Reagan's victory and the fact that the roof did not fall in, and in some ways, a lot of people got richer in, in ways they didn't expect, set the stage for how people viewed the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah, well, I think the Thatcher-Reagan accomplishments of the 80s framed the collapse and you can see the collapse as changing Thatcher and Reagan from points of real and deep contention in a very deeply divided societies on both sides of the Atlantic that aren't that different from where we are today to by 1989 saying, aha, you know, we all believe this stuff. And you had and Clinton and Blair, you know, people who would have been on the far right in the 70s now be the soft liberal mainstream. And that's one way of capturing it. But it also during the brief heyday of the Washington consensus, the outliers really were outliers, places like Cuba and North Korea. And almost everyone around the world was trying to get or at least pretend they were getting on board for. And the, what was the what would you say were the elements that they were all getting on board for? So I think there was a pretty wide commitment for the idea that economic development was key and doable and that redistributive issues could be at least postponed, if not put aside entirely, in pursuit of economic expansion. You know, Deng Xiaoping, I don't care what kind of cat as long as it catches mice, captures the mood of the time every bit as much as Reagan and Thatcher. And and there was a fairly broad consensus about what it took to expand the economy, to create wealth. And this happened to parallel, I think, these marvelous achievements in the knowledge sector, not just I think the tech sector, we tend to think of tech as involving people with white lab coats. But, you know, I try to argue that, you know, anything where knowledge is an input or an output is part of the knowledge economy. And the importance of those activities as a proportion of all economic activity has grown significantly in the last 50 years. And these policies were conducive to that particular kind of economic activity. Yep. That's a good point about technology and knowledge. If I were 
now to try to explain what it is that holds all that together. It's having a job where you really have to learn something new every couple of weeks in order to do your job. And that has not necessarily been the case for most jobs, but jobs where you have to keep up with the field or with new developments went from being pretty rare and people were getting keeping up with developments from reading the local paper to one where there was an enormous amount to keep up with and it was well rewarded. Yeah. And we can, you know, see this in our own particular industries, but I think it's pretty, that's to say the practice of law and the teaching of law, but it's just as true, I think more true really, in wide swathes of economic activity. So you talk about international law in the book as part of that consensus. That may not be as obvious to everybody, but there's certainly the notion, if I read the book right, is we all thought we the West won. The West has a bunch of institutions that have worked for us. That's why we won. Let's just take the rest of the world and bring them in the, to those international institutions with their rules and their requirements, and they'll prevent backsliding by applying international legal rules. There was a great faith, I would say, as well as commitment in rule of law, both nationally and internationally. And part of my formative experience was spending a good part of the 90s working uh, with various institutions, principally U.S. Treasury, on designing tax systems for the former socialist countries in Europe and Asia. And the pattern there was a lot of very good economists who assumed law the way economists assume things, and just made important policy recommendations. In many cases, the countries had no ability to turn down those recommendations because they were in debt or afraid of Russia or whatever the reason. And so we saw a significant policy changes based on a conviction that something called law would really do a lot of work. And if it does work at the national level, even better doing it at the international level, given that some of these things are collective action problems that have to be solved internationally. And law is a solution, it was thought, to these problems. Right. So we can afford to do a rough and ready privatization of the entire state economy and hand it off to people who may not be very attractive because at the end of the day, that will create property rights, will be protected, and that property, the people who have that property will either compete and continue to win or they'll compete and lose. But at the end of the day, we'll have a more or less free economy that will give us the benefits that the West have, has already seen. Yeah, the examine premise was that markets will get us to where we should be. And the unexamined premise during the time was that markets can work here, not taking into account the underlying you know, social conditions and things like having a disinterested and effective judiciary that was just taken for granted. And if it didn't exist now, we could train it up very quickly. And you know, just assuming that those forces would work of their own volition without a lot of government intervention or guidance, and in many cases, assuming if there was government intervention and guidance, it would be benign rather than what we actually saw, kleptocracy at work in not all, but many of the countries. So we're getting to the worm in the apple, I think, but I want to just briefly remind everybody who lived through the 90s that if you were in the knowledge economy, law or anything else, it was a remarkably 
good time. I once said to somebody said, how are you doing? And I said, I'm doing great. I've never been more worried about, you know, where I'm going to earn my living next, but I've never made more money than I'm making right now. And what I didn't say, but which is certainly true and stuff I buy mostly got much cheaper because we had China in particular, but a lot of other countries coming online and allowed to sell products that were putting auto workers and steel workers out of work because they were undercutting them in price. But it meant that for consumers, life could not be better. So it was a good time, especially in retrospect, but it carried with it, I think, the seeds of its own destruction in the form of all the losers. And let's not leave out that not only were middle class and upper middle class people like us in the West doing great, but at the bottom rungs of society, hundreds of millions of people were brought out of extreme poverty into something that maybe not great, but so much better than they and their ancestors had lived in for millennia. I mean, that too was a magnificent accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a flip remark by somebody who said that the result of all this is that for most working Americans, they will have to get by on a wage that a Pakistani off the farm would consider a very good wage. Yeah. Okay. So you can start to see the strains from the, you know, one of the reasons that the bitter divide that we talked about in the early 80s disappeared is that the principal proponents of the left-hand side of that divide, which were labor unions, also more or less disappeared. They lost all clout in the private sector and no longer were able to shape the national dialogue. And so that was a reflection of the fact that the people they represented in particular were on the receiving end of all of the new competition from the newly prosperous, I guess it's fair to say, parts of the third world. So part of what was going on is those folks were losing income. And to my mind, maybe even more important, and this started to show up toward the end of the 90s, they lost respect. They were increasingly treated by the folks who had done very well in the 90s with a sort of baffled contempt, right? Or maybe we just need to teach these people to code because they obviously are, they're heading off and they're voting for Republicans. They're showing signs of being angry white men, of having racial resentment for the changes around them. So we started to see a divide that wasn't entirely economic, but was very real. And set the stage for what we have now in which everybody is spending their time thinking of ways to demonstrate more and more vigorous contempt for the other side. And that certainly is part of the problem. We also had a similar divide on the part of the countries that thought that this was not working out for them. And Russia, China in particular, embraced what would you call it populism? I, it, to my mind, it is. It's what Putin's selling is kind of populism in which he musters his people to show that they, you know, they don't like any foreigners and they're not going to let foreigners tell them what to do. 
Yeah, I call it in the book populist nationalism. And I mean, I think it's a common thread that you can see in Modi's India, OBL's Mexico, Duarte's Philippines. It's not just she's China or Putin's Russia or Boisonero's Brazil. And indeed, I think this may be what unite Boisonero and Lula in Brazil, even though their politics are otherwise extremely different. So in those countries, it is, you know, the people who did well with the investment banks or worked in the IMF are the main enemy. Oh, we can see this in Turkey now in its elections. And and even if the form of politics are not liberal democratic, they are sometimes democratic in the sense that, for example, I think President Xi cannot take his population for granted. I think he stays up late at night worrying about his people. And the same with Putin, I think, is not a dictator who leads passive, mindless slaves. He, I think, does things that resonate with what the people want as uncomfortable as it is for us to accept that. Yeah, the people who talk to each other in, in, in the United States about these things have fallen into the habit of saying, oh, well, you're not really democratic because you're not liberal democratic. You know, Orban or the leaders of Poland, they're not really quite democratic as we would define it, which ironically, especially when you get to a place like Israel, is saying you're not democratic because you won't let your Supreme Court override your legislature. That's nobody's definition of democratic except this very special notion that we've developed to divide us from China, Russia, Poland, and Hungary. Yeah, whenever I hear the word democratic, I, I want to jump in and just insert automatically liberal in front of it. Of course, I'm very comfortable in a liberal democracy. That's what I've been trained up to do, and I see great benefits in our society. But Israel is a wonderful example of the how it I won't say it's not suited for, but it at least becomes problematic in a society with the kind of rifts and challenges that a country like Israel faces. Well, ironically, if it weren't for the, the chattering class's absolute abhorrence of the Republican Party, they would be calling this system republicanism. They'd say it is it's not democracy because it's not pure democracy. We have a whole set of institutions designed to slow democratic change down and do a double check before we actually embrace the change that is being proposed by the voters, the saucer that cools the tea and all of that. That is the Republican system. That is the system we have, but nobody wants to call it that. So we've ended up with liberal democracy as a way of making liberals feel better about republicanism. Yeah. 15 years ago, I was engaged in a debate in American interest on, I wrote with two of my UVA colleagues who were writing about Russia. And our point was our conception of the only model of democracy gets in the way of finding areas of common agreement and that maybe we should be exploring where we can get cooperation with Russia on problems of mutual concern rather than trying to remake them in a way that they won't want to remake and in the face of their own conceptions of themselves as democratic by their lights. And the other side of that debate was this guy named Mike Mafal. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he was rather vehement on the other side. Uh, the only interest we have in Russia is in turning them into being like us. Yeah, yeah, no, and they, they, until they're flying the LGBTQ2S rainbow flag, they really are on the other side. 
Okay, so the last thing that happened before we start talking about why it happened is the technology, which we embraced with enthusiasm because it made all our lives so much better in the 90s and saw it as a tool for liberation in the, the decade that followed. And we were still in 2011. The government was saying, yeah, Twitter, it, it's going to bring down all these authoritarians. By 2016, we had begun to see and begun to deploy technology as a mechanism for enforcing a certain amount of authoritarianism. We saw, this is ironic, I think, the people who were actually the elite running the United States had been so enthusiastic about technology overturning elites that it hadn't occurred to them it might happen to them. But then it did in 2016. And China got really good at using their technologies for authoritarianism. And suddenly we began to see that technology was not going to save us. Yeah, I actually think the best book on this topic is written by a woman who is a Turkish sociologist on the Columbia faculty. And unfortunately, I don't know my Turkish well enough to correctly pronounce her name, but she's an op-ed columnist for the Times, Sevnev Seki, I think. Uh, but her account... It's probably tough. Checky is my bet, or uh, yeah. Checky. But we know who we're talking about. I think right. she's terrific. And her narrative on the techno-optimism behind the Arab Spring in Turkey, and then the realization that the, the thugs had the better technology, or at least the better for managing that conflict and crushing the opposition. It's a really wonderful account in one particular time and place of how that worked. So that was a very important development, the rise of the surveillance state, the ability to use the technology to assemble big data, which we're, the current panic over AI is simply one dimension of that. I do believe that big data accumulation is our big challenge over the next 10 years and our Friends in the PRC clearly have the lead in that. They're as ahead of us, I think, as our friends in Europe are behind. And then the uses of technology to do spoofs and fakes with strategic intervention. You know, all of these are ways in which this technology that we thought would bring us back to hate Ashbury in the 60s is turned against us, bitten us in important ways. Yeah. And I would add, as a conservative, what we have seen is that the very same tools that are being used in China to enforce the the orthodoxy are increasingly being used by Silicon Valley, sometimes in alliance with the, the government, to enforce an orthodoxy that, if you're a conservative, is very plain. And if you're a liberal, you probably don't notice it because it's, it's the water the fish swims in. But if you're even moderately conservative, every once in a while, you say, wait a minute, I can't say that. And the answer from Silicon Valley has been, nope, you can't. You can't say it to your friends on Facebook. You can't say it to 20 people on Twitter. You just can't say it. And so we have begun to see how techno-authoritarianism works even without an authoritarian state. Okay, that's, you know, the, the, from great beginnings to a very muddled and dark present. What I want to talk now about is, and the part that I really started to enjoy most about your book was tying that to what you call the knowledge economy, uh, where I thought there were a lot of insights. I don't agree with all of it, but I, there are some really 
deep insights into where all of these trends came from and how this is, in many respects, the knowledge economy working out what it wants, what it needs, and getting it and maybe getting more of it than we really want it to have gotten. Yeah. So, you know, my argument, let me preface this by saying, I mean, I for me, the real challenge of the book, I'm not a trained economist. I'm an autodidact, but almost all of my scholarship has been economically oriented. And what I try to do is explain potentially complex and counterintuitive economic concepts in a way that will make it relatively clear to an intelligent audience. And that's what I hope that part of the book does. The I think there are two big points One is that knowledge scales. That's to say it's very expensive to create knowledge, but relatively inexpensive to disseminate it, which means that unlike the physical economy where you're consuming physical stuff, which becomes scarcer the more you consume, knowledge has the opposite effect. And also it's more valuable the more it's disseminated. The concept of network effects has something to do with that. And both of those factors dictate breaking down barriers to transactions so that you the whole world can become your market, both for obtaining inputs and for selling your stuff. And this is what we call globalization. I don't talk about globalization in the book as such because I think it is a effect and I think the knowledge economy is the cause. So uh, what I try to do is explain why the knowledge economy creates incentives for the policy choices that we see of creation of things like the WTO and NAFTA, greater mobility of capital, greater mobility of people. Another argument I make that I think is more controversial is that the knowledge economy is based on an empire of talent. And talent doesn't like barriers and perceives historic distinctions among people that lack a a sound economic basis as stupid bigotry. And therefore, the knowledge economy creates incentives for anti-bigotry moves that in our current world may be hard to distinguish from wokeness. You know, I mean, I, I would create a distinction between economically rational ending discrimination that prevents the realization of human talent from, you know, identity for its own sake, which I see at the heart of wokeness. And- yeah, I think they're completely different myself yeah. as well. I, that the First is a kind of meritocracy, the notion that if you are smart enough to talk to me about this topic, then you're in the club. And if you're not, and I just want to talk to people who are smart enough to talk to me. Elon Musk has got to be part of this. He's a a meritocrat about smarts and uh, aggravates people because he sometimes says that the conventional wisdom is not smart enough. But it's a common view And it's the reason why people would say, I don't believe in discrimination, except on the basis of how smart somebody is or what they know. Whereas I do think that wokeness, to my mind, is actually a reaction to meritocracy in many cases by people who aren't sure they're going to get to the top that way and who want to say, no, something else matters. My identity matters. My background matters. My race or my gender matters. And that should count for something that counterbalances the insistence that raw 
ability, raw knowledge is the way you judge people. Yeah, I mean, I think those are both broad general concepts. I think I completely agree with you at the level of generality that we're talking about. I mean, where disputes arise and where tensions and tempers flare is, you know, application to specific facts and to what extent one is talking about historical legacies. And, you know, I don't feel the need to go down that road. My point is that the knowledge economy feeds a sense that the world is rewarding me, the world is rewarding me because of my talent and anything that gets in the way of expressions of talent by myself or other people is to be attacked. Right. And it gives people who've won in this economy another reason to look down on the losers. Yeah, uh, it's, it, the contempt just flows from the initial ideological commitment to what you could call meritocracy. Yeah, and I also try to you know, frame the losers as, you know, not simply deplorables. I mean, I take on board very heavily the research of Angus Deaton and Ann Case, where, you know, there's a, a measurable, countable, physical side of the losing in the world economy, the deaths of despair. And it's not just deaths themselves, but the impact of families and entire communities of all these tragedies, which can be mapped out locally. That's the other thing about the knowledge economy is how local it is, that you know, information transmission by proximity is an important part of building knowledge. And so what we see are global cities. The term is the sociologist Saskia Sasson. And I think earlier work was done by people like Jane Jacobs. And Paul Krugman's early work was partly about this as well. So you have localities based on innovation and you have elbowing aside other people who have their own communities, which increasingly are bleak in the very graphic sense of excess Precisely mortality. Precisely because they're not sharing in the knowledge sharing that is happening in, say, Silicon Valley. And they're not given other forms of reward or outlets. They're not. They're, it's generally perceived that their misfortune is earned misfortune because they're not talented in a world that values talent above everything else. And so they don't. Other forms of consolation aren't accessible to them, and there's not much hope for a better future. So, uh, and I think this is really the breeding ground for at least nationalist populism in the rich world. The disaffection. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Where did you grow up? So I had a funny growing up experience. My dad joined the CIA not long after I was born at the height of the Korean War. And so we moved to Washington. His work took him overseas. So we spent several years in an illegal base in the South Pacific on the island of Saipan. You know, not supposed to be there. The base wasn't supposed to exist. It, I learned what my father did for a living 10 years later through an article in the New York Times. And we returned to the Washington area. And, and so I, I grew up from mid-1960 until I went off to college in the environs of the suburbs of D.C. Okay. So that, that may account for some of our differences. I grew up in Dearborn, Michigan, surrounded by Ford workers, where it was really important whether you were management or labor, or whether your parents were. And in a milieu where, yes, there were significant differences between management and labor and between people who were resonant to the values of one or the other. But there was always a sense that that was enforced by the unions that every one of the labor union members was a fully a full citizen 
whose views were entitled to respect. There was just no way in which you could denigrate their views. They were an integral part of the shaping of political consensus. And so you had blue-collar workers whose views got treated with respect. So even if they didn't make as much money, and they didn't as management, they were perfectly respected. And that's completely broken down, in my view, as the people who are in management don't have to deal with the folks who are not and who can then think that there's something wrong with the people who uh, have failed to make it. So my reaction to that is much more oppositional than yours, I suspect, because you didn't grow up with those folks. Yeah, well, I mean, I can see the data, even if it's not part of my lived life, that, you know, far more often now people live in communities around, with people like them. And uh, it's much less common for people who are doing well in the knowledge economy to live in close proximity to people who are, you know, the children of the people who were in the unions. I mean, the one area where in my life where I actually see it is kids' sports. It's about yeah. the only place where, you know, that if you have kids who are, you know, are, are doing sports, where you actually have a mixture of cultural and class backgrounds. But unless you're lucky enough to have that experience, it's quite easy to live in a bubble. And more and more people in America, in Britain, but even in Europe, yes, because the people who are the outsiders in continental Europe are more and more immigrants who are you know, you don't want to have your kids in school with them. You live in different neighborhoods from them. You have different cultural interests. Maybe at the football pitch, they'll be, uh, but I've been warned by Austrian friends not to go to the soccer games because of the kind of people who are in the, the crowds. Yes, yes. That sounds very Austrian. Okay. And so you you talked a little bit about, I thought it was very practical, the reason why the knowledge workers would clump together. And we see it in our everyday life. The the knowledge that is driving economic change, where people are suddenly making up money over a new discovery that they can build on scale, that sort of is diffused by osmosis into, you know, over coffee and at kids' sports events. You learn things that are important to you in your job in those informal networking events. And so it really is more valuable to be in Silicon Valley, even with those housing prices, than to be in Des Moines. And that happens with whatever particular bit of the knowledge economy you're talking about. And it does, and it, it does make you worry for Des Moines. Yeah. I was writing this book at the height of COVID. I was working in the Pentagon and there were people who said, but now we're all working remotely. I mean, how can this be true? But I think we've learned in the last three years that there's no substitution for face-to-face -face interactions, that remote working is really not a good substitute. It does some things well, but, you know, so knowledge transmission cannot fully be captured by investors, but a lot of its value can be captured. I think that was Paul Romer's principal insight, an important one. But the part that can't be captured is passed by transmission and having people in closely related or even competitive industries. Certainly in the tech sector, there's a lot of labor mo mobility as there is arisen in law now because, you know, letting people learn by hanging out with new people is more valuable than holding them in place for long periods of time. So I'm going to take your 
discussion of this and move it a little further, and you can tell me whether you agree with me. I think there may be something about being a knowledge worker that makes you particularly susceptible to FOMO, fear of missing out. Because if you want to make money off of knowledge, you want to catch it before it has completely scaled out and disseminated to everybody. You want to be part of disseminating it and of using it first. You want to be in the startup that takes the iPhone and says, what apps could we build on top of that? And so you want to have one, you want to talk to people who are designing the next generation, and then you think about what apps you could come up with. And that kind of constantly wanting to know what's happening and being at the edge of your field is sort of FOMO. And I'm going to offer this. I think that knowledge worker FOMO accounts for some of the political division in the country that, you know, there are plenty of people, you can read it in lots of places where people will say, hey, I just got around to saying uh, it's okay for people who are gay to get married. And uh, it took me a while to get there, but I got there. And now suddenly I'm a bigot because I don't want my kid to learn about uh, the possibility that they're in the wrong body in their third grade. You know, it's a kind of head spinning for people who are not constantly checking the New York Times to find out what the proper views are and adapting quickly to them. So I do think that one of the sources of division here is that there's a speed up in the formation of liberal values and ideologies that leaves people who aren't interested in that or who don't have that inclination to try to keep up feeling increasingly as though they have been left behind. What do you think? Well, there's some truth to that. Stuart, but the fact that I said some means I don't completely agree (laughs) with you. I mean, I think that that underlying anxiety, that sort of sense that if I'm not an outsider at the moment, I could become one quickly is probably pervasive. But I'm not sure how quickly it translates itself into those cultural issues that you identify. I mean, I think there's something there. I don't fully disagree with you, but, you know, there are a lot of, for example, LDS people and Christian evangelicals who are active in the knowledge economy, you know, and so it doesn't exactly work that way. I mean, you know, you look at the amount of tech coming out of Utah, and it's pretty amazing. It's not there's got to be... <laughs> You're right. There's a difference between Utah and Wyoming that we have to explain some way. And so let me, I don't totally disagree with you, but I'm not sure it's as important a factor as, uh, I, I don't have your focus at least. Right. Okay. Fair enough. I am more interested in the authoritarian use of technology to enforce a a liberal ideology. And so I'm more curious about the origins of it. And, you know, look, I'm part of the knowledge economy. So you can be part of the knowledge economy and not buy into every aspect of it. Okay, I'm going to interrupt here, not for an ad. God forbid we never do ads. But to give you a break and bring this discussion to a temporary end, my interview with Paul Stephen goes on for another 40 minutes or so, and we will present part two as an attachment to the next episode of Cyber Law Podcast. So before closing the episode, I just want to share a review from 
one of our listeners, Jane Gents. So give us five stars. She says, it's a hilarious title. It was euthanizing AU, which was my effort to say the EU is adopting rules that will kill its industry, but leave it with the impression that it's being protected. Jane Gents says, Stuart, 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 lover of EU regulations, usually has top-notch guests, so please have fewer so they can speak more. That title kills me. It's too funny. A perfect balance of informative analysis and witty banter. Agree when guests are puzzled by Stuart's rigid opinions, but always appreciate exposure to different points of view. So once again, our core demographic is people who disagree with me, but nonetheless find me entertaining to listen to. I'll take it. As for the rest of our panel, thanks to Ginny, thanks to Paul, thanks to Sultan for joining us. If you know somebody in the audience who's looking to work for a podcast, break into the industry, we are in the market for a sound engineer. Mark Chernasek has been doing a great job, but he's going to be a lawyer soon. So send a CV or a bio to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com, not step gmail.com and send comments, feedback, questions to the same address or leave us a review because we love getting them, especially if they both insult me and praise me at the same time. That's perfect. This has been episode 458 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Cyber Law Podcast.